Accounts of Ireland's dietary history are often understandably dominated by the famine and how the catastrophe directly prompted a dramatic change in Ireland's relationship with food. And Ireland is shown to have adopted safer dietary patterns from the 1850s onwards, relying increasingly less upon the potato as a staple dietary article, and instead consuming and producing a, a more varied array of foodstuffs. During the famine, the country shifted from being a net exporter of grain, and throughout the decades which followed, meat, bake, butter, bacon, ham and egg exports increased. Whilst the amounts of imported cereals, groceries, butter, cheese and bacon rose dramatically, meaning that the population enjoyed a more varied diet. Social historians have begun developing a more nuanced picture of post-famine dietary change, which details, for instance, widespread malnutrition in Dublin slums and across vast areas of rural Western Ireland well into the 20th century. Nonetheless, even despite an awareness of um, these considerations, dietary adjustment is often presented as having served the useful purpose of shielding the country from future devastation. The country is presented as having in some way advanced and progressed towards a pre-famine, sorry, away from a precarious pre-famine relationship with food towards a more varied modern diet and away from a subsistence existence towards one characterised by the growth of a wider range of crops and increasing integration into modern international economic systems. And notions of progression and improvement are often paramount within such accounts. For instance, historian Louis Cullen has depicted dietary change as synonymous with societal improvement, and he argues that the evolution of diet corresponds closely to the general profile of transition in Irish society. Because the reality of this shift was, of course, far more complex, and within the post Ottawa project from which this presentation stems, I intend not only to explore relative neg neglected ground, but also to suggest that the absence of detailed historical analysis of post-famine Ireland's dietary past misrepresents its significance and complexity. And what I aim to demonstrate overall in the project is how food-related anxieties persisted well into the 20th century, and that the processes whereby Ireland forged new relationships with what it ate and produced were far more intricate than is often presumed. Existing studies of post-famine diets meticulously detail what people probably ate in the past. So Leslie Clarkson and, and Elizabeth Margaret Crawford's Feast and Famine is the most informative account. This assesses available historical data through the lens of modern nutritional reasoning, and the authors have determined what foodstuffs the Irish population probably ate between 1500 and 1920, and their likely nutritional status. And the authors persuasively demonstrate that throughout the second half of the 19th century, Irish diet became identifiably closer to that of its counterparts in the United Kingdom. Of course, this constituted a dramatic cultural and social change, given that in 1845, close to 45% of the Irish population had subsisted primarily upon potatoes. So again, the, following the famine, the Irish populace has shown to have enjoyed far greater food variety, although Clarkson and Crawford note that the price was often paid in terms of nutritional well-being. And although this study is immensely valuable, it's often less informative on precisely how and why Irish diet changed following the famine. It doesn't explore the complexities of changes in consumption or the intricate social and cultural meanings embedded within post-famine dietary reform. Dietary change held important meaning for both the consuming Irish public and for those critically observing them. Factors which the methodologies of nutritional analysis often prove far less useful for exploring. Food is a biocultural phenomenon and eating and digesting are not solely undertaken to meet the energy and nutrient needs of the body. There are also physical acts laden with reference to social, cultural, economic and political processes. So within the project I'm trying to argue that Ireland's shifting relationship with food was intrinsically multi-layered. It did not simply occur naturally or spontaneously in response to lessons learned from the famine, nor did anxieties surrounding food simply recede once Ireland's monocrop culture went out of fashion. 
On the contrary, I argue that food persisted as a remarkably problematic aspect of Irish society throughout the period in question and beyond. Discussion of banishing the potato to guard against mass starvation and to modernise the Irish economy were important to Irish food discourses of the 1840s and 50s, but later accounts of dietary change often came to show commonalities with other narratives, such as that of Irish improvement, degeneration and cultural pessimism. Furthermore, discussion of Ireland's shifting relationship with food was often also highly intrigued by questions such as how to negotiate Ireland's integration into social and economic modernity. One interesting aspect of the modernisation of Irish dietary habits is how it differed from similar processes in other countries. For instance, in England, as diet historian Derek Hoddy has extensively detailed, the displacement of traditional foods accompanied the dramatic social changes accompanying industrialisation during the 18th century. As urban centres expanded, industrial workers became separated from agricultural food bases and food markets commercialised. Inheriting this trend was a profound sense that dietary reform in some way provided a precursor for social and economic improvements, as well as national modernisation. <clears throat> in many ways, it provided an index of social modernity. But these developments were, of course, not without their problems. Increasing class inequalities often resulted in poor nutrition and the decrease, decrease in physical stature of citizens lower down the social scale. In turn, this generated intricate social anxieties regarding how best to feed urbanising populations, prompting numerous inquiries into food quality, supplies and dietary health. Nonetheless, the doctrines of discipline such as political economy sought to bring Irish food habits in line with that of countries including England prior to and during the famine. Even though the social and economic conditions which typified modernisation were to a large extent absent or lacking. After all, Irish dietary behaviour might well have been brought more closely into line with its British counterparts, but Britain is- itself was experiencing a turbulent relationship with food, a scenario felt most strongly amongst less afflu- affluent communities. Their food supplies were often notoriously adulterated. Knowledge of cookery remained limited until well into the 20th century. Permian feeding provided a contentious social issue with connotations of national degeneracy, and dyspepsia was frequently described as a national disease of Britain, in part because increased access to foreign foodstuffs was seen as damaging stomachs and weakening physical stamina. And this predicament was not lost on many Irish contemporaries during the post-famine period, who did not necessarily perceive modernisation and industrialisation as the preferred path of national progression. Although it appeared obvious that a transition into modernity had hardly created a dietary paradise in Britain, this failed to deter speculation on how to bring Ireland into the spectrum of modernity, a step often seen throughout the early 19th century as entailing the displacement of the potato diet and bringing the country more in line with modern food systems to stimulate national progression. Improvers rarely stopped to consider the ramifications of connecting Ireland to international modernising patterns or to question the suitability of Ireland as a site of modernisation, So the project as a whole, which covers a period from 1845 until the end of the First World War, and which at the moment draws upon eight discrete phases of post-famine dietary concerns, asks questions such as which actors and communities instigated, promoted and negotiated changes in Ireland's relationship with food, how successful were they, and what underlying motivations persuaded individuals or groups to partake in such activities, be they professional, experts, social, political or otherwise. Medicine plays an important part of this story, but I'm also interested in how dietary reform interacted with other arenas, including education, policy-making, empire, institutionalisation, philanthropy, science, technology, war, and Irish politics. I also ask who else social cultural authority in matters pertaining to food in post-famine Ireland, if anyone. 
Do differing individuals or groups interact amicably with one another, or do food become a contested terrain? And how do the different actors interested in food publicly present their interests and for what purposes? In what ways do these actors connect their public assertions to notions of improvements or conversely to articulate apprehension towards a perceived lack of Irish improvements? Often underpinning these questions is a complex relationship forged between these multiple actors and the state, although I focus today to a lesser extent upon that particular aspect. Historical relationships between food, the state and the people gain additional complexity in the Irish context due to their frequent entanglement with an often contested system of colonial governance. If anything, Irish food reform between famine and independence can be seen as characterised by constant negotiation between the state, the consuming public, food producers and disciplines including science and medicine. So overall, I'm less interested in determining precisely what different sections of Irish society most likely ate or produced at any given historical point. And I'm more interested in the debates, anxieties and controversies which stem from what commentators believe the population to be consuming and producing and the wider meanings of these. Today I specifically wish to focus upon the interlinking of narratives of Irish improvement and food reform during the immediate post-famine period, so between about 1850 and 1900. During the half-century following the famine, Irish um, dietary habits altered dramatically. Clarkson and Crawford have demonstrated that the numbers of people involved in food retailing grew from fewer than 24,000 in 1861 to almost 69,000 by 1900. Correspondingly, the amount of grosses per head increased from 40 to 115. Ireland's expanding railway system and road networks further encouraged the spread of commercial activity, meaning that money could be spent on new commodities even in the most remote of regions. Throughout the 1850s, an anticipated dietary change tended to be greeted positively by many commentators, who maintained that displacing the potato and promoting culinary adjustments would not only protect against future famines, but would also assist in rendering Ireland modern and productive. But suitable paternalistic mechanisms with which to guide the Irish populace and their dietary choices often fail to emerge, which is a problematic scenario given that the products available within an increasingly consumerising culture rarely promoted improved nutrition. Certainly, the adjustments of this period cannot easily be construed as guided by the scientific enthusiasm which has so pervasively penetrated food discourse during the late 1840s. As I argue elsewhere in my projects, the emerging field of nutritional science had formed synergies with official relief policy during the famine. During the famine, important scientific and medical groups deployed by the governments in Britain um, assisted, sought to assist in understanding blight and to seek out alternative food supplies for the Irish population and readily made use of um, contemporary nutritional science, in particular the chemistry of Justice von Liebig. Hence, a scientific commission comprised of figures such as Robert Kane and chemist Liam Playfair had attempted to apply chemical analysis to make sense of the decomposition of potatoes, an approach which in reality probably impeded acceptance of ideas that blight was fungal in origin. Importantly, the Central Board of Health, a group of medical experts brought together to manage the ramifications of problems such as famine fever, had attempted to raise public awareness of what foodstuffs the Irish population should replace the potato with, again specifically referring to Liebig in nutritional theory. And Irish medical and scientific communities had also been remarkably active in debating the nutritional quality of soups offered within the controversial soup kitchen scheme instigated by the government in 1847. Hence, scientific inquiry into food converged with governmental policy in a manner which is quite unusual for its time. 
and the actors in this um, kind of combine to, um, to affect an agenda of banishing the potato and encouraging the population to become aware of possible new future dietary directions which were to be heavily informed by scientific understandings of food intake. But following the famine, direct governmental and scientific intervention in nutritional education remained notably lacking. Although food science continued to enjoy intimate relationships with government authorities, this interaction tended to become directed more towards providing assistance in areas such as food adulteration rather than in guiding communal consumption patterns. But what had emerged during the famine was the emergence of a nutritional consciousness, which facilitated a general shift away from discussing the seemingly large um, amounts of potatoes consumed per person in Ireland, a theme that had dominated pre-famine food discourse, towards debating the nutritional intake of post-famine citizens. The ideas of good nutrition forged within this period visualised an appropriate diet as consisting of variety, restraint, and the ingestion of correct combinations of nutritious material. Increased access to an array of new foodstuffs certainly precipitated dietary variety, but was this seen as synonymous with the nutritional value which had previously been obtained for the potato? And a range of actors during the post-famine period concurred that it certainly was not. And for instance, this perspective was exemplified within provo provocative evidence provided by President of Queen's College Cork and Fellow of the Royal College of Science, Thomas Sullivan, to the Select Committee of Irish Industries in 1884. And he was questioned as followed. He was asked... Are not the people able to buy both clothes and a better class of food? What may be called the comparative luxuries of tea, sugar and everything of that kind in a different proportion from what they were in 1848? To which he answers, undoubtedly, but I should demur at the same time to tea and sugar being considered the measure of prosperity in this country. He's then asked, um, would you admit that they are able to consume a better class of bread? And he's, he goes on to say, as a chemist, I say, the old system of food when I was a boy was better than it is now, and that I have not the slightest hesitation in saying that the food of the people has deteriorated, and that their food was superior when I was a boy. Within his responses, Sullivan implied that efforts to attain a healthy dietic modernity had failed. Greater variety, in his view, had not provided a precursor for good nutrition. The retrospective nature of his claims is unsurprising, given that investigations made during the famine and afterwards had proven the potatoes to be a highly, highly valuable source of nutrition a fact which late 19th century medical and scientific memory operating in Ireland remained acutely aware of. Hence for Sullivan, although consumption patterns are certainly reorganised since the famine, the optimism with which such a change would have been met during the 1840s had gradually receded by the 1880s. In its place of cultural pessimism, regarding the well-being of the Irish body, unease towards the disintegration of older ways of life, and a nostalgic stance towards earlier periods, when food was not quite so varied, but citizens appeared healthy. Contemporaries such as Sullivan strove to connect physical decline to an increasing willingness amongst the Irish poor to subsist upon a diet consisting mainly of tea and white bread, which was especially the case for women. Thus, the cultural loss of the potato carried multiple meanings in relation to the Irish body, facilitating the emergence of concern regarding nutrition, health and the general condition of post-famine Ireland. Where had it all gone wrong? According to the doctrines of early century political economy, a dietary revolution was intended to regenerate the country both socially and economically, a stance that had visibly infiltrated general opinion towards Ireland's monocrop culture. During the famine, for instance, the Dublin University magazine had made concerted efforts to associate the potato with what they termed habits of filth, 
A connection is amplified by images of the peasant's dunghill and his unclean pig residing with him in the cottage. The, the, um, this carried underlying assumptions that introducing new foodstuffs might foster more civilised habits and, and psychological mindsets, forcing the peasant to seek out new foodstuffs, removed him from his food source and obliged him to interact with trading systems, activities seen as potentially transforming him into a modern economic being. Accordingly, the publication asserted that subsistence lifestyles closed off Irish peasants from mercantile and social worlds, essentially being a solitary existence requiring no assistance from others. Civilization, however, was seen as having advanced only through mutual dependence and labour division. And on this matter, the magazine asserts that um, what lessons of prudence were to be learned, what habits of frugality to be acquired in the solitary monotony of this unsocial existence, the very fact that throughout the whole process the man might subsist, that ever handling a coin was enough to account for his knowing but little of the value of either industry or money. A fuller, more varied diet was also foreseen as holding the potential to increase economic outputs. For many, this potential had been rendered visible in observations of labouring migrants and emigrants. We seem to confirm widely held views that although a potato-based diet was suitable for the lighter forms of agricultural work characteristic of pre-famine society, successful fulfilments of the demands imposed by modern economic and industrial existence necessitated fuller diets which would in turn maximise Irish potential to navigate modern labouring life and stimulate social and economic progress. For instance, land agent William Bullock Webster reported in 1852 that Irish emigrants who had landed in Canada, although typically larger than French Canadian labourers, proved to be inferior farm labourers. And Webster notes that Canadian labourers fed themselves in a breakfast of bread and milk, and soup and bread and lunches of bread and onions, then followed by an evening meal of meat and vegetables. Only when the Irish emigrants emulated this diet did it work efficiently, according to Webster a change which also served, in Webster's view, to raise him as a higher standard as a social being. Webster's views were shaped to suit his wider agenda of promoting Ireland as a potentially rich investment source. Nonetheless, they reveal the connections often drawn between food, the Irish body and social and economic potential. In such accounts, accounts food becomes something which shapes, defines and guides social and economic domains. Hence, for some, diet was one means by which Ireland could regenerate itself following the famine, but could the process of effecting dietary change really be so simple? Certainly leading intellectual figures, including William Wilde, adopted a more cautious stance, arguing in 1857 that to effect any sudden alteration in the dietary of a people is a matter of greater difficulty than a change in either of the religious or political institutions. The former, under excitement, may become as contagious as an epidemic, the latter be enforced by the strong arm of power. While a revolutionary diet, especially in Ireland, where the accustomed food had been easily raised and was comparatively palatable, and moreover, had become the basis of habits so firmly fixed as to influence the entire social condition of a people, required even more than the stern necessity of want before it could be accomplished, or the inhabitants brought to relish any other descriptions of food. While perceptively recognised that potato consumption formed an integral component of Irish national identity and constitu constituted a deeply ingrained social practice, even despite the consequences of the famine, its consumption remained culturally tenacious, despite its catastrophic potential. For centuries, the potato would find who the Irish peasant was, shaping his cultural identity and his social interactions. Hence, despite prevailing hopes that Irish dietary patterns would naturally progress, Wilde remained astutely aware of the capacity of the Irish labourer to reject suggestions that he should vanquish the potato. Similar sentiments were expressed in 1866 by popular Belfast novelist Charlotte Riddle, 
having resided in Carrick Fergus in County Antrim until 1855, Riddle would have been well acquainted with the social impact of the famine and the changing dietary habits which followed the cat- catastrophe. In a conversation in her novel, Maxwell Druitt, a group of her protagonists hold the following conversation. The famine must have taught the Irish not to pretend, depend on potatoes, uh, interrupted Mr Gitton. Would a Moran teach the English not to depend on beef or mutton? And certainly not, but beef and mutton are not potatoes, are they? To which um, the response is potatoes were beef and mutton to the Irish. Riddle's text demonstrates her views towards a deeply engraved position in the, of the potato within Irish culture and its function as a resonant emblem of national and individual identity. Hence, although a broad consensus existed which foresaw a shift away from a monocrop existence as preferable, the precise means by which this was to be achieved, and indeed the extent to which it could be achieved, remained unclear. If the resilience of the potato was to be overcome and forms of dietary reform developed that promoted bodily strength and simultaneously increased economic productivity, then suitable mechanisms needed to be put into place with which to guide the Irish populace in appropriate directions. But did these exist? As mentioned earlier, both professional and official interests in governing changes in diets wange following the famine. Perhaps it was hoped that forces operating in Ireland would direct this change. Certainly occasional reports surfaced of landlord efforts to harness scientific expertise by introducing labourers to new foodstuffs to increase economic output, such as that instigated by commercial farmer Alan Pollock in County Galway during the 1860s. Pollock supplied his labourers with peas and beans in accordance with scientific precepts. We stipulated that a pound of peas formed as much muscle as 15 pounds of potatoes and were also rich in lime and phosphoric acids, which fed the brain and locomotive organs. But such reports are unsurprisingly rare, rare given that the landlord class was notoriously characterised by absenteeism and very often a relative lack of interest in forging improvements. An ongoing discrediting of the usefulness of scientific approaches to food further weakened the field's potential to extend its ethos of nutritional guidance in Ireland, ensuring that science's positioning as a dietary authority remained insecure at this particular historical moment. Critics typically speculated that natural as opposed to guided dietary adaption could occur. In the community, so it was invariably assumed, the search for new foodstuffs would be guided by natural instinct, just as decisions made to consume potatoes had seemingly arisen from a natural awareness that the crop contained all the nutritional elements necessary for healthy existence. Prevailing tensions between knowledge and instinct were eloquently expressed in 1861 by an anonymous contributor again to the Dublin University magazine who openly dismissed medical and scientific authority within culinary practice. And he asserts that only the devil could have suggested to Sawyer the horror of a red herring pie or potatoes mashed with cod liver oil. And then he claims that only the devil himself could have suggested to Liebig the horrible notion of extracting the juices of raw beef and mutton and calling the product soup. Continuing his diatribe, he lambasted those chemists who analysed the biological consistency of crops and meats and then went on to recommend certain products as the most suitable for body and health. A key problem identified was that emotionally detached research conducted within chemical laboratories failed to fully navigate matters such as human taste and appetite, or in the author's words, holy instincts which reason cannot comprehend. Taste in particular became presented as a factor that was incomprehensible to laboratory analysis. In relation to Ireland, chemical science became blamed for having failed to suggest new foodstuffs 
which the Irish labourer would find as palatable as a potato once had been. Uh, and for disconnecting consumption from its personal and cultural dimensions. Hence the human experience of ingestion seems to have become separated from scientific inquiry, despite it often providing an important index of public food choice. The author goes on to assert that it should be in the kitchen, not the laboratory, where knowledge should be formed. For him, female intuition provided the most suitable guide for culinary regeneration, as opposed to cookbooks and scientific regimes of knowledge. The female chef was described as possessing a far higher instinctual dialectic authority than either Liebig or Sawyer. And as the author describes, a woman cook has no business to reason because she is a woman. She should implicitly follow prescription, heeding what has come to her by tradition and not striving to go beyond it. And cookery to her should be a veritable culture, a belief reposing on faith, not to be reasoned upon without danger. Here, dietary regeneration rested in the authority of instincts and natural family relations, as opposed to science. This perspective relied upon underlying presumptions that the female possessed an instinctual awareness of the goodness found in particular foodstuffs, and that she had the means and knowledge with which to prefer, prepare this food, and that she required little guidance from sources of authority outside of the domestic sphere. Of course, presumptions that women instinctually knew how to cook alternative foodstuffs often proved problematic. Just seven years earlier, the Dublin University magazine again had asserted that the modern Irish compared with other nations in a similar state of advancement in all other respects were, and perhaps are, the most uneducated in the culinary art of any people under the sun, and that the great bulk of peasantry in the remote rural districts of Ireland, especially the south and west, could not dress food of any other description than potatoes and eggs. But did this theoretical dichotomy between science and instinct bear any relevance at all to the actual day-to-day activities of the Irish <coughs> poor? Investigations made during in, in the 1860s presented a different picture. It revealed how the public chose to purchase and consume food and suggested that the typical consumer cared little for the doctrines of nutritional science or instinctually chose to consume and prepare foods with the highest nutritional contents. Nor did social, economic, political and cultural regeneration ever seem to form a primary agenda of food choices. An important dietary survey undertaken by Edward Smith in 1863 indicates how consumers understood shifting patterns of food consumption during the immediate post-famine period. Smith had accrued um, an impressive reputation throughout the 1850s due to his research into human nutrition, within which he undertook important experiments into prison diets that challenged some of Justice von Liebig's basic concepts. He also worked hard towards establishing a minimum standard of diet based upon 4,300 grains of carbon and 200 grains of nitrogen requiring daily consumption, thus sharply defining the boundaries between sufficient and insufficient diets. During the early 1860s, Smith was acting as a medical officer for the Privy Council as part of his duties for this role. He was dispatched to investigate eating patterns in northwest England during the Lancashire cotton famine, and a second dietary survey conducted by him was far more extensive and investigated consumption patterns throughout the entire British Isles, including Ireland. In Ireland, Smith's investigations focused upon agricultural labourers, labourers with rel- relatively small earnings, and whose conditions seemed to represent average living standards for that social grouping. Accordingly, analysis of groups unable to work, such as the sick, for instance, remained unrecorded. Geographically, Smith's investigations into Ireland focused primarily upon the West, although a quarter of his samples originated from southern and northern areas. Overall, Smith inquired into 52 families, constituting a sample of 269 people, 236 of whom were adults.
His findings presented um, a complex picture of post-family dietary habits, as demonstrated by Table 1. His findings highlighted the persistent popularity of the potato, although increased consumption levels of alternative foodstuffs, including meat, seemed apparent. Only 44% of his interviewees were determined to, to consume at least five pounds of the crop per week. Furthermore, the potato was shown to dominate diets immediately following the harvest season, being replaced with Indian meal and oatmeal only when these supplies ran low. When inquiring into the persistence of potato consumption, Smith's interviewees informed him that this was due to the crop's low cost, and certainly not to any strong faith in the crop's nutritional properties. Likewise, Indian meal retained a notable presence in Irish dietaries, as anticipated during the famine, being a staple dietary article with 92% of interviewees. However, the results of Smith's correspondence with labourers suggested that this was ascribable less to a faith in his nutritional properties or to preferences for his taste. Instead, when potatoes are absent, meal was believed to provide the largest amount of nourishment rather than nutrition. Pointing to the multifaceted opinions on meal, Smith asserted that it would scarcely be an exaggeration to say that it is universally disliked, while at the same time it is held in high estimation as a temporary food until better times come, and is universally admitted to have been, and still is, of the greatest service to the labouring classes. Importantly, Smith noted that although the educated classes had made efforts to determine that the labourer could work better on meal than potatoes, labourers maintained different views on the matter, in fact believing that meal decreased efficiency. Notably, interviewed labourers also stipulated that although they desired more meat, they did not understand meat as an article necessary to ensure health or strength. However, Smith's investigations had demonstrated that consumption choices were mostly predicated on the basis of food availability and cost, as opposed to available nutritional knowledge or natural physiological instinct, then what was to happen was new consumerist products became increasingly available. Ominously, Smith detailed a profound desire among Irish peasants to obtain a more varied diet, identifying what he termed as a general longing after the so-called luxuries of their brethren in England. The popularity of luxury goods, including tea and coffee, was also increasing, and Smith feared that these drinks contained less nutritional value than products such as milk, whose usage they threatened to replace. Implicit in this account was a sense that Ireland's increasing integration into modern trading systems was precocious, a theme whose social significance intensified during the closing decades of the 19th century. Overall, what the various forms of commentary and medical inquiry of this period also point to is a diversity of views towards how dietary change could be affected, as well as a profound difference of opinion amongst medical communities, the educated lay public, and the consumer about how food choices could be predicated. Hence, although a wide range of actors debated Irish dietary transformation, given the lack of agents and institutions guiding the population, it was in many ways inevitable that the population would choose a path based upon food availability and cost. For most late 19th century commentators, a shift towards purchased foodstuffs was interpreted critically. Liam Kennedy has observed that a national network of rural retailing extended in response to rising farm incomes and developing consumer consciousness. With regards to diet, one outcome of this was that food purchasing choices often became directed by factors including family budgetary requirements and price. The growing prosperity of the shopkeeping classes was an important consequence of increased shop purchasing. The extent of purchasing even amongst purpose sections of the population, was such that people relied upon it to procure goods made from flour, Indian meal, tea, sugar and bacon, although shopkeepers often, of course, became detested public figures as they promoted reliance upon them through accumulation of customer debt. In what ways did these developments impact upon post-famine dietary change? 
inquiries made by the congested district boards from the 1890 indicate that Irish term dietaries have by then diverged dramatically from the trends described in Edward Smith's dietary service of the 1860s amongst rural communities, pointed, and pointedly revealed the rapid spread of consumerism. Unlike Smith's more positive rendering of um, rural dietary health, the annual reports produced by the Congested Districts Board portrayed dietary customs negatively as an issue requiring urgent resolution. Even in a good year, so the board's first report claimed, the community is little more than free from the dread of hunger. Low standards of living and inadequate diets were detailed as characteristic of even the most prosperous districts. Leslie Clarkson has analysed the baseline reports which preceded the establishment of the board, revealing that bread was mentioned in 78 districts, tea in 70, Indian meal in 58 and bacon in just 23, with milk, fish, eggs, oatmeal, butter, sugar, cabbage and meats being consumed to lesser degrees. Although potatoes remained in common usage, Clarkson observes that rural food consumption had widened in nature, Tea and bread were revealed to dominate dietary customs, often being exchanged at grocers or eggs. It is noted by Kira Brown that the food items bartered with often contain more nutritional value than the items purchased in place of them. Technological innovation too played a part in raising anxieties regarding the direction of Irish diets. The nutritional quality of bread, for instance, was seen to be waning. Bakeries have played a relatively limited role in pre-farming society, but during the late 19th century, mass production methods cheapened bread's cost. From the 1880s, gradual reduction roller milling gradually replaced traditional flour milling practices. New processing, processing methods displaced the traditional usage of millstones to grind the grain, and crude sieving and separating techniques. But this trend had a discernible downside in that modern forms of bread contain less nutritional value. Prominent Belfast surgeon William McCormack was amongst one of the first to comment on the deficiencies of late-century dietary habits. McCormick was remarkably active in campaigning for improvements in the conditions of Belfast's less affluent classes and turned his attention to publicly campaigning for dietary improvement during the 1860s. For instance, in 1863, he writes to the Belfast newsletter and argues that I would have tracks to urge the preparation of wholemeal bread for white bread combined with weak tea used three times a day is not aesthetized enough, is quite unfitted for exclusive sustenance and impairs in this town yearly the health of thousands. He goes on about how he wants to write tracts, pointing out the confection of wholesome stews and wholesome nutriments. And he argues that the art of cooking and of keeping garments clean and comfortable should be taught in every school. Everything, in short, ought to be done not to degrade but to elevate, not to confine the aspirations to this life, but to lead them into the reasonable hope and expectancy of a yet more elevated life to come. McCormick clearly perceived continuing dietary problems as stemming from a dis distinct lack of means of properly educating the national population. In this instance, identifying the absence of these as adversely affecting the well-being of Belfast's urban populace. A limited comprehension of nutritional knowledge was presented as especially problematic, given the seemingly rapid changes in the nature of food procurements appeared to be compromising communal health. McCormick strengthened his arguments with the course of chemical and physiological theory which stipulated that the fine white flour increasingly being consumed in Ireland was far less nutritious than unbolted flour. Hence apprehension regarding Ireland's dietary direction directly implicated modernising processes as physically damaging and, and problematic. Above all foodstuffs, however, it was tea that came to dominate criticism of dietary change not least because it acted as an exemplary culprit within an array of detrimental modernising forces seen as impacting upon the Irish body. 
Unlike bread, tea was imported. Prior to the famine, it was considered as a luxury item. But during the latter half of the century, the substance became increasingly utilised as a staple dietary article throughout less affluent segments of society. And this development was also encouraged by the product's increasing cheapness. According to evidence provided to the Royal Commission of Labour of 1894, the cost of tea had dropped from just over three shillings to under two shillings between 1873 and 1893 in Castle Bay, County Roscommon. During 1863, Edward Smith had ascertained that Irish farm labourers consumed on average one and a quarter ounces of tea per household weekly, but closer to the end of the century, concerned members of the congested district sports ascertained that as much as a pound was being purchased weekly per family in locations such as Leverley, County Galway. Clarkson and Cobb Crawford have also noted a startling rise, estimating that by 1904, family tea consumption in agricultural regions averaged 9 ounces a week and close to 12 ounces in urban centres. Tea tended to be shop purchase, although the types of tea consumed tended to be cheap quality black Assam tea that would often be bartered for by more nutritious goods such as eggs. Correspondingly, the usage of milk began to decline. The development of modern creamers throughout the 1880s and 1890s was invariably blamed for accelerating this trend, as fresh milk would be, would be dispatched to these establishments to be separated, although the labourer and the skim milk was returned to the labourer. Contemporary reports indicate that families found this taste unfavourable, instead choosing to feed it to the livestock. At the creamery, milk's solid elements were removed, leaving a disproportionate amount of unpalatable and unnourishing fat content. But what meanings were formed in response to increasing reliance upon tea as a staple dietary article amongst less affluent communities? In Britain, tea provided a marker of middle-class social civility and an index of polite society. But anxieties regarding its usage amongst the less affluent classes proliferated, meaning that tea adopted a somewhat ambiguous meaning. The boundaries between tea as a safer and unsafe substance proved to be remarkably fluid, allowing for anxieties to emerge, concerned with the substance's apparent misusage and with regulating its consumption. It seems probable the discussion of Irish um, tea-drinking habits arose in response to corresponding discussion in Britain, which was regularly presented in outlets such as the Med- British Medical Journal and the Lancet. In Ireland, attention became increasingly drawn to as a consequence of widespread tea-drinking in both urban and agricultural communities. During 1872, for instance, one lady reported to the Irish Times that taking shelter in a cottage near Banbridge, County Down, some time ago during a shower of rain and noticing the teapot on the hob, I observed that tea stewed in that way did a great deal of harm. The woman who lived in the cottage had once admitted that the parish doctor had said the folks were killing themselves with tea and that it caused him more trouble than anything else. And the um, author goes on to claim that a few days ago a gentleman had come into town and mentioned that the poor people in his neighbourhood suffered dreadfully from tick. And the doctor had said, um, well, yes, then, well, I must say they do take immense quantities of tea. Publicly articulated medical discourse such as this clearly aimed to connect imported shop-bought tea with specific diseases and bodily ailments to reveal how the day-to-day purchasing habits of the population increasingly clashed with the ideals of a modern dietary science which venerated correct combinations of chemicals and restrained amounts of meats and vegetables as a dietary ideal. This constant stewing of tea on the stove throughout the day was implicitly juxtaposed in middle-class traditions of restrained civilised tea-drinking in polite company. The apparent evils of Irish tea-drinking habits transformed into a topic of live debate in Ireland following a remarkably erudite public condemnation made in Wales by the non-conformist Dean of Bangor, Henry Thomas Edwards, during 1883. 
Edward is publicly known for his efforts to incorporate denominationalism in the national education system, and he interjected a public meeting on education by arguing that no education and nutrition should be incorporated into school syllabuses. And he argues that excessive tea drinking creates a generation of nervous, hysterical, discontented people, always complaining, complaining of the existing order of the universe, scolding their neighbours and sighing after the impossible. Good cooking and more solid substances would, I firmly believe, enable them to take far happier and more correct views of existence. And he concludes by saying, in fact, I suspect that overmuch tea drinking by destroying the calmness of the nerves is acting as a dangerous evolutionary force amongst us. And this is widely publicised in both Britain and Ireland. And the Irish press heavily publicised and debated the Dean's speech, not least because parallel concerns existed in Ireland. The Irish Times, for instance, warned its readers of the important implications for Ireland contained within the Dean's, out- Dean's outburst. Tea, so the newspaper informed its readers, was an unsuitable principal food of adults and proved especially detrimental for children subsisting upon nothing else but the subject, as was claimed to be the case in Ireland. The newspaper explained that tea-making to excess amongst its class is a form of laziness which produces mischievous results. The Irish Times asserted that the humbler classes required nutritious diets preferably consisting of oatmeal and milk, as these foods calmed the nerves and encouraged endurance. And continuing, the Irish Times argued that the Dean of Bangor's gloomy forebodings predicts little less than our general physical and moral decadence as a people and nation if we persevere in our addiction to the pleasures of the teapot. The Dean's statements and subsequent reportage in the Irish press were loaded with cultural resonance. Firstly, tea became firmly connected with notions of nervousness and consequently presented as a nervous stimulant rather than a suitable source of nourishment. When drunk to excess, tea was understood as generating nervous excitability, stimulating the body and mind as opposed to building strength. Of course, these perspectives were less attuned to the economic realities of many families living in Ireland and failed to account for the struggle to ad- adequately budget. Nonetheless, emergent ideas regarding tea follow the lead of prominent medical theories developed internationally by key figures including American neurologist George Miller Beard, who detailed close physiological interactions between tea and nervous exhaustion and the weakening potential of modern life. Accordingly, both medical and journalistic representations internationally and including Ireland depicted tea as being consumed for purposes of producing sensory stimulation, thereby depleting nervous energy supplies and adversely affecting physical stamina. Hence, tea's impact upon the nervous system was presented as impacting detrimentally upon both physical and emotional resistance. And it's in this context that reports later emerged of washerwomen, kitchen girls and mothers from the outpatient departments of Belfast hospitals complaining of headaches, nausea, loss of appetite, physical distress following eating and persistent dizziness. On one occasion, a cycle of events was depicted where the tea-drinking housewife gradually lost her appetite, slowly coming to loathe food and eventually seeking solace in the teacup, although this ultimately intensified her condition. She then developed methods of tea preparation that allowed her to secure as much tannin or tannic acid as possible from her tea to quell her ever-intensifying physical cravings. And ultimately, the housewife is depicted as having become afflicted with a range of nervous conditions. The root of the problem, according to such reports, lay in the practice of keeping pots of tea stewing all day on the stove and then drinking from it throughout the day, a method seen as differing dramatically from the apparently healthier Chinese method of pouring boiling water onto leaves. Secondly, contemporary medical thoughts also correlated nervousness with less beneficial aspects of modern existence. 
The interlinking of tea and chronic dyspepsia was proving particularly emotive in the context of late 19th century food discourse. Dyspepsia, or indigestion, was then understood as a chief disease of modernity and is most likely to afflict those subject to the, to the demoralising influences of modern life. It was also generally identified as a key problem connected with modern consumerist culture. For instance, Wexford-born physician and traveller Arthur Leavitt deployed elaborate physiological models which stipulated that nature had provided for the particular constitutions of national races, hence the British, Italian, Eskimo races and so on, were depicted as, as having evolved by making natural choices on which foods were the most appropriate for the dietary systems. And to a certain extent, this reflects earlier discussion of the instinctual reliance on, upon the potato in pre-famine Ireland. But for Leavitt, international communication and impo- improved transportation systems facilitated an unnatural spread of foodstuffs, meaning that unsuitable foodstuffs were entering stomachs for which they were un- unintended for, or in Leavitt's words, the mere circumstances of confounding together many articles of diet, the products of opposite climates, appears to me a very probable source of dyspepsia in those otherwise predisposed. And thirdly, discussions of these nervous implications became firmly entangled with wider debates relating to national decline and degeneration. During the late 19th century, the disciplines of medicine and psychiatry constructed increasingly pessimistic models by positing that physical and mental weakness replicated themselves through hereditary factors Medical authors depicted national vitality and strength as being in a state of decline, a situation deemed likely to worsen in future generations. More often than not, narratives of degeneration implicated the lower classes, a group seen as most likely to reproduce and pass some physical and mental defects to the offspring. A discussion of Irish tea contributes to this intellectual trend by revealing how the bodily implications of excessive tea consumption contributed to deteriorating national strength. Such images clearly destabilised earlier discussion about Ireland's heightened interaction with modern economic systems would promote physical strength and economic productivity. The inclusion of these ideas within documentation ranging from medical literatures and newspapers to official inquiries suggests that apparent interconnections between tea and communal physical decline were understood by a wide range of actors, even if the complexities of nervous theory may not necessarily have been for instance, um, the notion that the Irish populace was in a condition of gradual physical decline due to dietary reform having been affected permeated Irish evidence given to the Royal Commission of Labour in 1893. Mr Lynch, a labourer from Delvin, County Westmeath, insisted that the children are spoilt in their youth from not having milk. The people are killing themselves with tea, the men don't work so well in consequence. And stir about and milk used to be a grand thing for them. Likewise, Mr Ward, a playman, stated that they were stronger men in the old days, and now they are more prone to heart disease and other ills, which I believe is owing to the modern diet. Hence, contemporaries seemed acutely aware of the nutritional goodness which had been lost along with the potato, and increasingly adopted a pessimistic stance towards the bodily value of the goods whose consumption had been encouraged by the displacements of the potato. Problematically, psychiatric complaints were also seen as replicable through reproduction. Set against this context, T's potential mental and psychiatric implications increasingly provided a fruitful source of apprehension. Throughout this period, close links were drawn between tea and insanity, as psychiatry drew connections between mental complaints and nervous stability. 19th century medical thought often saw the stomach as the epicentre of the human nervous system, and gastric problems might then become apparent throughout the entire bodily system. The brain was one of the key areas where the consequences of gastric derangement might manifest. 
So Leavitt, for instance, maintained that individuals suffering from a nervous temperament were especially prone to morbidly acute and oversensitive mental impressions. For authors such as Leavitt, excessive tea consumption did not directly create insanity, but dyspepsia, stimulated by excessive consumption, could certainly create nervous excitement and thus encourage psychological decline, especially in those predisposed to such conditions, including women. And such contests permeated both experts and lay discussion. For instance, in 1872, Dublin newspaper The Freeman's Journal reported the case of a 32-year-old servant girl who, despite having been in good health for years, had become irritable, suffering from laughing and crying fits and having got into a state of great weakness. The servant had attempted to conceal her problems from her mistress by continuing work as usual, but one day when trying to clean a grate, she collapsed speechless and senseless and proceeded to have several hysterical fits. Medical investigation later ascertained that she had become increasingly addicted to tea over a number of years, apparently caring for little else. An alarm over the implications of modern eating habits on the nervous system crescendoed during the 1890s when official investigation into apparent rise of asylum emissions throughout the country were investigated. Here, medical opinions whilst tea became widely deployed as an explanatory tool. The ingestibility of shot bar tea became construed as one of the most likely explanations of rising asylum emissions. For instance, an official inquiry noted that in the Amar districts, the number of first emissions had increased by 82 in a period of just five years. The inspectors interpreted rising emissions with, with consideration of the inability of the poorer classes to purchase nutritious food. They also cited heightened levels of vexation and worry created by the adverse economic conditions generated by agricultural depression and an interrelated derangement of physical and mental functions. Further contributing factors identified, including the withdrawal of the support of family life due to emigration, hereditary predisposition and alcoholism. The inspectors blamed this rise, apparent rise of insanity for producing a peculiar form of dyspepsia, which in turn debilitated the nervous system. Diet, it was claimed, had unquestionably contributed to much of the district's insanity, and a large number of patients bore the scars of scant improper food, resulting in a condition described in the report as the insanity of malnutrition. An article published in the Journal of Mental Science on the matter during 1894 by Thomas Drapes, resident medical superintendent at Enniscorthy District Asylum, further reveals how connections were drawn between tea and insanity, and the way in which they were connected to wider debates regarding islands um, shift to us what might be considered as a modern diet. Drake's warned that we see T's effects in the number of pale-faced children who are brought upon it instead of the old-time honoured but now nearly abandoned porridge and milk. Hence Drake's views are illustrative of perceptions of a new crisis in Irish dietary customs, yet one seen as no stemming from interacting with modern economic systems. The threat posed by excessive tea drinking was therefore resonant with wider concerns about the post-famine direction of Ireland and its citizens, and the cultural fallout of Irish encounters with aspects of social and economic modernity. It also reflected increased apprehension towards the cultural loss of the potato. And by 1895, it's little wonder that we have terms such as tea drunkards entering popular discourse in Ireland, as well as phrases such as tea mania, the physiological consequences of which were believed to be headache, vertigo, insomnia, palpitation of the heart, mental confusion, nightmares, hallucinations, and even suicidal impulses. Although contemporaries articulated concern about many aspects of post-famine diet, it was a habit of generally consuming tea with just a few slices of bread, which became presented as the worst possible outcome of Irish engagement with modern consumerist cultures. It also made visible the problems associated with, with removing consumers from their food source and of replacing the potato with cheap imported foodstuffs. 
T transformed into an exemplary targeted dietary criticism as its innutritious nature appeared easy to prove utilising contemporary medical thoughts on nervousness, and also because a habit of subsisting upon tea alone was one which seemed the most alien to, to a traditional Irish culture that had mostly relied upon consuming large quantities of homegrown food. To conclude, it seems clear that post-famine dietary reform is clearly not a straightforward process and created its own set of anxieties. For many, dietary reform had failed to live up to the aspirations that underpinned famine period social discourse, thereby, thereby facilitating a deconstruction of narratives of improvements. Although the pervasive influence of a monocrop culture centering around the potato had clearly declined, as many had hoped that it would do, food anxieties continued to surface throughout the late 19th century and beyond, not least because of a deep-rooted awareness that the potato had in fact contained enough nutritional value to promote bodily health. Ireland's increasing adherence to forms of consumer culture allowed medical men to define the country's increased engagement as potentially unhealthy and pathological in nature. Although it was hard to deny that the adjustment of um, Ireland's dietary systems had undoubtedly protected the community from minor potato farmings in the 1890s, fresh problems emerged which focused upon a gradual decline in Irish physiological health and which foresaw the problem as one that would persist unless effectively remedied. In particular, the widespread usage of tea as a staple dietary article became, became presented as having compromised the strength of the Irish body, which had long remained shielded from such weakening external influences. And the debates which this spawned um, can be seen as impinging on much wider discussions, um, which I talk about in other parts of my research. For instance, um, problems of tea drinking became of importance to wider gender debates about the important social role of the housewife within Irish society. It also proved central to debates about how to reconfigure Irish educational systems around the turn of the century and to spread domestic education. And it also became entangled with economic concerns that post-famine Ireland was exporting much of its nutritious foodstuffs, including meat, to Britain, and importing instead less nutritious um, goods, a claim that was to become central to public discourse in Ireland during World War I.